the word of God speaks to us. But concerning that day or that hour, no one knows, not even the angels in heaven, nor the son, but only the father. Be on guard, keep awake, for you do not know when the time will come. It is like a man going on a journey. When he leaves his home and puts his servants in charge, each with his work and commands the doorkeeper to stay awake. Therefore, stay awake, for you do not know when the master of the house will come, in the evening or at midnight or when the rooster crows or in the morning, lest he come suddenly and find you asleep. And what I say to you, I say to all, stay awake. This is the word of God to us. We on? Here we go. Thank you, Brittany. Um, as uh, she's going to her seat, I want to give a shout out on our kids' ministry. Brittany leads our nursery ministry, Dylan Watts. <laughs> Need I say more? <laughs> so amazing. Uh, Dylan Watts leads our elementary ministry. This morning we had a baptism class um, for both adults and kids, and we had 13 elementary students in that baptism class that are considering taking a next step of obedience to Jesus. So really big deal what's happening in our kids' ministry. We can clap for that. Super cool. Hey, my name is Chad Kinser. I serve as one of our pastors and um, privileged to open God's word today. If you've got a Bible, open to, uh, to Mark 13. That doesn't bother me at all. It's just normal in my house. Normal. Um, Mark chapter 13, passage that was just read. And um, how about you pray for me and I'll pray for you and we'll see how God would, uh, would speak to us and shape us today. Father, thank you for those that were in the baptism class this morning. Thank you for what you're doing in our next generation. And uh, God, thank you that your kingdom is so much bigger than any one of us and it's, any, it's bigger than any one of our generations. And so God, I pray that you'd make us faithful to keep delivering from one generation to the next the wonders and the works of our God. We ask now that you'd make us attentive to your word, make me faithful to your word, allow us to be formed together by your word, and um, would everything you intend to accomplish today uh, be accomplished as we open this text. And um, I'm so thankful, God, for everyone here. I pray that however they're thinking about themselves today and however they're thinking about this moment, I pray that they would know by the end of the gathering that you love them, each and every one of us here, and you've considered us, and there's not a single hair on our head that's not been numbered by you. <laughs> You're deeply aware of every aspect of our life. God, and I pray that the ministry that needs to take place in our own souls would, would happen as we open your word. So we offer this prayer in Jesus' name, and everybody said, amen. I want to open with a question. Um, it may sound a bit strange, but, but track with me here. Is, is any of this even real? Faith in Jesus. The life of a Christian, is any of this even real? And I open to that question this morning because it's a common question, isn't it, along the life of faith? There are moments where this comes into our mind or comes into our internal conflict. Maybe there's no conflict, maybe it feels like resolve, but this comes into us at times. Is any of this even real? It's certainly true for those who are following Jesus, and it's certainly true for those who aren't followers of Jesus and considering 
whether or not this means anything. Is any of this even real? It's, it's a question that comes forward. Sometimes we say it out loud, but probably more often than not, if you're a follower of Jesus, you feel like you can't say it out loud, and so you don't, you know? And you're just like, I'm gonna work all that out under the surface, you know? But just to say and to name it, it, it's a very honest and real question that comes to us. And there's different ways we try to deal with a question like that. Is any of this real? We, we, sometimes we look away from God and we start to doubt him and we just chase our doubts. And we just let our doubts start circling up with a thousand more narratives and it makes it a bit confusing for us. Other times the way we try to deal with it is that we look to our feelings and we let our feelings decide for us what's true. And we might come to different conclusions in a different moment because of how we feel, right? Let them interpret the world and our, even our own selves. I feel differently now, therefore I believe differently now. Another way we try to deal with a question like this is we look to the opinions of those outside of the faith that have the same kind of counter arguments that we have and we look to them to corroborate our doubts and they go, well, if they're articulating it in a much more learned way than me, I'm just sort of thinking about it, then it must be true or not true, as it were, and we just let someone else decide for us. Other ways we could answer these sorts of questions is to look to Christians and seek answers from others who maybe doubted before us, <laughs> right, and come to a faithful conclusion. At the bottom of it, here's what's happening with a question like that. All of us are trying to determine, is what I've come to believe is out there, is it actually out there? <laughs> or if I just made this up? Right? That's at the bottom of it. And the good news, here's the thing, the good news for anybody who's grappling with doubt at that level is that God's not opposed to you. God's not afraid of your questions. He's not somehow insecure and doesn't know what to do with himself if you don't think the most positive things about him and how somehow he's going to become different and then coerce you another way to then feel better about himself. God's a big boy. He can certainly handle himself. Right? He's not bothered by you or inconvenienced by your doubt, here's the reality. You're not the first person. You're not the first person to doubt, and you certainly won't be the last. But it's also true that if you believe in Jesus, you don't believe in a vacuum. You don't believe on an island by yourself as though you made this up and you've come to conclusions and then you just showed up and you go, oh, I guess other people in a vacuum came to the same conclusions. No, 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 no. Any believing person believes eyes wide open, not just with those that are sitting next to you, but you believe eyes wide open with very smart thinking people through the history of the church who have come to the same conclusions and confessed the same thing. Jesus is Lord. The testimony of the faith throughout the ages and those who have gone before you is a powerful thing. You're not believing something new in a modern era. You're believing with the history of people. Most important, though, when you ask a question like this, is any of this even real? You don't have to go, you don't have to go outside of God to verify God as though there's some external or higher source that's gonna validate him. He is the source, right? You don't have to go somewhere, and that's not to discount like going to books that might help you or resources that might help you grapple with questions that you have. That's a helpful and right thing to do. There's also unhelpful books, right, I should say. And it's not to discount going to people and having conversations with other people and figuring out your stuff, but it is to say you don't have to go to something outside of God to determine what's true about God. This is the process, this kind of question is the process of learning to try and learning to believe God's word 
and that what he says is true is actually true. And you don't have to conjure or make it. And so I bring all of that up because this kind of confusion, this kind of doubt shows up especially around the topic that we're going to talk about today, around the second coming of Jesus, the return of Jesus, the visible and physical return. Is any of that even real? Certainly it's something that's at the core of historic orthodoxy, the faith once for all delivered to the saints, something that we believe and we hold to. Yet at the same time, if we're honest in the room, and I always want to help us and seek to be honest, there are moments where we question we start to wonder, is this even real? And as we wrap up Mark 13 today, the passage that we've been in the last few weeks, we're going to wrap up this chapter, our passage is going to bring up questions about the second coming of Jesus. And so if you're just jumping in with us today, I want to try to catch us all up to speed on where we've been the last couple of weeks and, uh, and do that briefly. Mark 13 and its parallel passages in Matthew chapter 24 and in Luke 21 are some of the most difficult passages in all of Scripture to interpret. And they're difficult primarily because they bring up questions about eschatology, right? The study of end times or last things, the end of the world. And so there's all kinds of assumptions in our current cultural moment, especially in Bible Belt America, whatever's left of it. There's questions and assumptions about things like the rapture, things like the great tribulation or heaven, life after death, or what even happens or What's going on with this return of Jesus? And a lot of us have some beliefs about these things. If I were to ask you over coffee, you would have some answers to some questions I might throw out. But you might not be exactly sure where you got those beliefs or where they come from or where you can point to them. Somehow, for some of us over the time, we've just sort of picked them up, maybe by osmosis or teaching that you thought you heard or you actually did hear or just a book by Tim LaHaye that you read and just assume that that interprets the Bible for us, Right? And that's why we've taken Mark 13 really slowly over the course of three weeks, because our hope and desire has been to just read Scripture, just read the Bible in its original and its intended context, and let the Scripture interpret Scripture, clearer passages, less clear passages, and then let those things help us understand what the Bible is saying as best we can come to it, and then give application for our life today. So here's where we land in the narrative, just to kind of bring us now to where we land. Jesus has made this prophetic exit from the temple. So what's been happening in chapter 12, preceding 13, is he's had all these debates, all these conversations and questions with religious leaders of his day, them trying to trap him, him actually exposing them as frauds, hypocrites, and those who have left faithful life and ministry unto the one true God. And then at the end of uh, chapter 12, beginning of 13, he leaves the temple. And it's not just him moving to a different location. It's this prophetic exit as if to say, I'm now handing over this religious establishment to the judgment of God, right? So I'll show you what I mean. Pack up, pick up at the beginning of the chapter in verse 1. And as he came out of the temple, one of his disciples said to him, Teacher, look at these wonderful stones, these wonderful buildings. It was a beautiful, majestic structure, one of the ancient wonders of the world. Look at how amazing that temple is. And Jesus said to him, Do you see these great buildings? There will not be one stone here left upon another that will not be thrown down. And as he sat on the Mount of Olives opposite the temple, Peter, James, John, and Andrew asked him privately, Will you tell us when these things will be and what the, sign, what the signs will be of when these things will be accomplished? So Jesus just said, hey, I'm actually that beautiful building, that temple, that majestic structure is actually going to be destroyed. This would have been mind-blowing in the mind of a first century Jew. Like, how could that possibly happen? 
And Jesus is going to come back to say, no, no, it's all going to come down. And they're going, when? When is that going to happen? And how are we going to know that's about to happen? That's what's happening in this conversation in Mark chapter 13. Jesus is then going to answer the question that they've clearly asked him. When and what's going to happen about that? And what we've tried to unpack the last two weeks is this is not Jesus hearing their question and then looking past them as if to answer the question for those who are 2,000, 3,000 years beyond them. I'm not really going to answer your question. I'm going to speak to the modern church. He's literally looking at people who have asked him a legitimate question, and he's going to give them a legitimate answer. That's what's happening in Mark 13. We're now looking on to the conversation that they had. In verse 30, to give evidence of that, in verse 30, Jesus says this to them in that conversation. Truly I say to you, this generation will not pass away until these things have taken place. Jesus is saying, all that I've talked to you now about in the destruction of the temple is actually going to happen in your lifetime. And then by history, we know that it did in 70 AD. It happened within their lifetimes. And so context matters. And the reason I'm breaking this down before we even jump in is because all kinds of interpretations have come from this passage, and they go all sorts of directions, especially when you forget how the conversation started and where it began. It began with their simple question, when's the temple going to be destroyed, and how am I going to know it's about to happen? Whatever Jesus says after that is just him answering their question. So today is about the end of this discussion, and it's popularly understood that it's about the second coming of Jesus. But over the years, faithful Christians have actually come to different conclusions about that. Faithful Christians, serious Christians, Christians who love the Bible, believe the Bible, have actually come to different conclusions. So we're going to break some of this down today and understand why they land where they land and then where do we land in the midst of all of it. So if you've missed the last couple of weeks, maybe you're sitting here going, what is this guy even talking about? Last couple of weeks we've been talking about this, so I'd encourage you to go back on our podcast or our website, grab some of those sermons, and then you can marry those together with what we're talking about today. Let me give you sort of our flow, our structure, and then we'll get to work. So I want to talk about interpretation first. Interpretation, I want to give two possibilities for the passage that we're looking at and show kind of where they come from, right? Then secondly, I want to talk about a clear command. This passage has a clear directive for us that we got to walk away with. Third, the New Testament teaching about the second coming of Jesus. And then lastly, the great day and today. Like, what do we do with it? What sense do we make? So that's our structure. Jump back in with me in verse 32, and we'll read the passage again. But concerning that day or that hour, no one knows, not even the angels in heaven, nor the Son, but only the Father. Be on guard and keep awake, for you don't know when the time will come. It's like a man going on a journey. When he leaves home, he puts his servants in charge, each with his work, and commands the doorkeeper to stay awake. Therefore, stay awake. For you do not know when the master of the house will come or return, as it were, in the evening or at midnight or when the rooster crows or in the morning, lest he come suddenly and find you asleep. And I say to you what I say to all, stay awake. So this passage, for a variety of reasons, throughout the history of the church, um, and, and we have read it very likely and assumed it's just been talking about the second coming of Jesus, about his return at the end of time. But as we've talked about the last couple of weeks, as if to repeat myself one more time, this whole section is about the destruction of the temple. And so if that's the case, then it's possible that these verses are just a continuation of everything that's been talked about to this point in Jesus sort of summing up his comments about what he wants his disciples to know 
about the destruction of the temple and how he wants them to respond when it happens. And so here's what I want to do in this interpretation. I actually want to pull back the curtain and invite you into a bit of a brief seminary lesson, right? Pull back the curtain and show you kind of where people land differently on this passage and how they get there, how they get there. Um, Some heavy lifting interpretive work because some of you come from backgrounds where this has been interpreted one way or another and I want you to see how a different group lands where they do. Others of you have never thought about this at all and you're reading this passage for the first time today and what I want to show you is how thinking Christians and faithful Christians can actually look at the same passage because this becomes a coffee shop debate. How can two people look at the same thing and come to different conclusions? I actually want to try to help you see some of that today. So I want to give a couple of reasons for two different interpretations, and I want to do my very best to represent each side fairly in a kind of way where you're going to go, well, what does he think? I don't know, right? I'll help you with that in the end. So two reasons why this is still talking about 70 AD, and then two reasons why this is talking about the second coming, and I'll try to make this pretty brief. Two reasons for 70 AD. The reason that some would see this as a continuation of what else has been talked about in this chapter is because there doesn't appear to be a change in subject. It just sort of continues on seamlessly from the verses that come before it. If you just deal with the language itself, they would argue, it seems consistent that everything that's been discussed concerning the when and the what signs will accompany the destruction of the temple is just kind of moving forward here. So when it comes to the destruction of the temple, Jesus says, no one knows the day or the hour. Only the Father knows, not even the Son And it's possible that he's using language that we typically would associate with his second coming to simply just sum up the question, sum up his answer to the question that they've asked him. So he's not predicting when it will happen. No one knows the day or the hour. He's just predicting that it will happen, right? This is the first argument that a continuation, 70 AD, is what's happening here. The second reason they would give is this. Jesus doesn't speak to his disciples in cryptic terms. Jesus doesn't speak to his disciples in cryptic terms. So there are moments all throughout the book where Jesus will give a teaching, and then the disciples don't understand it. And we could go back and look at these moments. And they'll come and they'll ask a question. Hey, can you kind of clear up what you were talking about there? And he'll do it. He'll clear up what he was talking about, and he'll give a very clear explanation of what what may have been unclear to the crowds is now clear to them. That's what's happening in this moment. He said this temple's going to be destroyed. They come to him privately and say, can you tell us about that? When's that going to happen, and what are the signs that's going to accompany that? And so if that's the case, the argument goes, then it wouldn't make sense that all of a sudden he would change the subject with no clear signal, and now I'm going to talk to you about something else. It doesn't make sense that he would change the subject with no clear signal and then talk to them about a subject that he hasn't even introduced to this point in the narrative without doing so in an explicit way as though they're to guess as to what he might be talking about something other than the question that they asked him, right? So this 70 AD continuation side would say, there's not a clear change in in subject matter, and doesn't he always seem to speak in a clear way? He's not leaving us to guess in cryptic terms as to what he's talking about. Now, let's go to the other side. What are they going to say? Two reasons why this is talking about the second coming. Number one, they would argue the exact same thing, but from the different side, There seems to be a change in subject in language that starts to point not just to the end of the temple, but to final judgment. 
And so there's what they would say and argue is that throughout this whole teaching, there's this stretch of time, these signs that are going to happen over a length of days, these signs that are going to accompany when you know the temple is going to be destroyed. But now he narrows and doesn't just talk about a stretch of time, he talks about a day, but concerning that day. And so they would say there's now a clear change in subject because he's moved from talking about a stretch of time to a single day. And in the first half of the sermon, Jesus gives specific signs concerning the events of the destruction's temple, but now he says that there will be no sign. It'll actually be happening in the regular stream of days, and no one knows the day or the hour, not even the, not even the son, but only the father. And so that's different because he was telling us about things he did know, and now he's telling us about things he doesn't know, therefore a change in subject. Second argument for the second coming of Jesus would be this passage uses the same language that's picked up later in the New Testament for how the apostles talked about the second coming, like it would come at an unexpected moment, like a thief in the night. And it stands to reason that if the apostles would talk about the second coming in this way, they're only doing so because they've heard Jesus talk about it that way. And then they, you know, I cite some references there, 1 Thessalonians 5, Revelation 16, and 2 Peter 3. So you listen to both sides and you're like, well, maybe I came in with conclusion of one, but I heard the arguments of the other, and that sounds pretty compelling. That's how I felt all week, right? Like, came to it. And I wanted to treat both sides really fairly. So the question becomes, which is it? Which is it? Is this about the second coming of Jesus, or is this about everything that else we've talked about and the destruction of the temple? Well, very humbly, I'm going to tell you where I, try to, where I land here. I tend to land that this chapter is talking about everything else that this chapter is talking, this ending is talking about everything else the chapter is talking about. It's talking about the end of the temple, the destruction of the temple that happened in 70 AD. I'm persuaded that there's not a change in subject. But pause with me. As I say that, I also feel very comfortable in saying that this prophecy has two focal points. That's very typical of biblical prophecy, that it was a prophet would say something that had an immediate implication or ramification and then a later fulfillment in something else. So I feel very comfortable saying that what Jesus is talking about is everything else that he's been talking about regarding the destruction of the temple and what he's talking about points to the eventual end of all things. The destruction of the temple came first and it's a foreshadowing of the end and the return of Jesus at the judgment when that will come. And what he says is true. We don't know the day or the hour. We don't. Like we, people try to predict that and they're foolish every time because even Jesus says, I don't even know that, right? We don't know the day or the hour. Now here's what's ironic. Whether you take path number, path A, not number A, <laughs> numbers aren't letters and letters aren't numbers. If you take path A and you go around the building that way, or if you take path B and you go around the building the other way, here's what's ironic about this and gives us our second point. There's a clear command, and path A and path B actually come around the building, and they end up shaking hands. They land in the same spot, right? But it's still worth trying to take the Bible serious. So here's where they land. There's a clear command here. Three times in this passage, three times in six verses, Jesus commands his disciples, stay awake. Stay awake. You can't refute that. Verse 33, verse 35, and verse 37. He says, pay attention. Keep awake. Pay attention to yourself, pay attention to the word of God, pay attention to what's happening inside of you, pay attention to where God's placed you in the world and what obedience to Jesus looks like in your moment. Don't be lulled to sleep. And now, 
I want to sit here for a second because this is a really important takeaway for us because this is our temptation. The longer things go, the busier things get, the more complicated your life becomes, the louder that counter-arguments against the faith become in our cultural moment. It's easier over time just to think that nothing's happening. It's been a long time since these words have been spoken and everything seems to be the same way it's always been. And if he's returning, then why is he waiting? Now it seemed a good time to come back. I bet you the Christians in Ukraine would say, now's a good time, Jesus. But I also bet you the Christians during World War II would have said, now's a good time, Jesus. Right? Everything's been happening as the way it's been happening and why is he waiting so long if he's actually going to return? Does any of this matter anyways? It's easy to be, you see how the pattern of being lulled to sleep when expectations are then not met and then you just assume, well, they didn't matter at all. And you come back to the question we started with, is any of this even real? It's not difficult to see how we get there. And the temptation toward indifference, our temptation toward apathy and doubt, as though none of this is real, is ex actually exactly why Jesus gave us this parable. Like, it's exactly, I'm predicting, you're going to go here, you're going to think that I'm speaking crazy things, and now I want to tell you how it's going to go down. So he picks up in 34, it's all going to go down like a man on a journey. When he leaves his home, he puts his servants in charge, each with his work, and he commands the doorkeeper to stay awake. Therefore, stay awake. For you don't know when the master of the house will come, in the evening or at midnight or when the rooster crows or in the morning, lest he come suddenly and find you asleep. Later in the New Testament, the apostle Peter is going to pick up on this same temptation in his second letter to the church. He says, knowing first of all that scoffers will come in the last days with scoffing. So we know this because Taylor Swift told us, haters are going to hate. And the apostle Peter is going to say, scoffers are going to scoff. Phil loves dad jokes. And I just offered them to our brother. Verse 4, they will say, where is the promise of his coming? For ever since the fathers fell asleep, all things are continuing as they were from the beginning of creation. If he was going to happen, why hasn't he come back by now? But notice his response. Don't overlook one fact. That with the Lord, one day is as a thousand years, and a thousand years is as a day. His timeline is not our same timeline. He's not seeing it just like we see it. And he says this, the Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise as though some think of slowness, as though God were slow. But what happens? He's patient toward you, and he's not wishing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. So the command from Mark 13, the thing that Jesus wants you and me and his people then to know is stay awake, stay alert, be vigilant, be watchful. We will end today with some practical applications as to what that exactly looks like. But before we get there, I want to briefly show you what does the New Testament teach about the second coming of Jesus. Whether or not this passage is about it, what does the New Testament teach? Listen, guys. The second coming of Jesus is the eager expectation of the early Christians throughout the New Testament and throughout the history of the church. When you read the New Testament, it's as though they're sitting on the edge of their seat saying, it's today, isn't it? No, 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 it wasn't today. So it's tomorrow, isn't it? Like it's the eager expectation of the church and it's the hope of all things that he's going to come, wipe away every tear from our eye, swallow death forever, turn all injustices to right with his judgments and to walk us into his kingdom. 
Like this is the eager expectation. And we actually want to confess with the verses I'm about to show you that the summation of the teaching of the New Testament is the Apostles' Creed that we confess as a church. That we believe in Jesus Christ, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and was buried. He descended to the dead, but on the third day he rose again from the dead, and he will return to judge the living and the dead. Where do we get that? We haven't made it up, as Rich Mullins would say, right? I'm not making up the faith. The faith is making me. I haven't, I haven't created this. It's not the invention of any man. This is the teaching of the New Testament. I want to highlight a few verses. I did my own survey of the New Testament this week. From Acts to Revelation, I found over 20 verses that clearly talk about the return of Jesus. And I probably missed some, but I want to highlight just a few. Acts chapter 1. And when he had said these things, they were looking on. He was lifted up, and a cloud took him out of their sight. This is talking about the ascension of Jesus after his resurrection. And while they were gazing into heaven as he went, behold, two men stood by them in white robes. These are angels. And he said, men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into heaven? I love that question. Uh, I'm looking into heaven because Jesus is ascending, and that's wild. You're asking me, why am I looking? Because that's crazy what I'm seeing, all right? But he says, this Jesus who was taken up from you into heaven will come in the same way you saw him go, physically and visibly. In the same way you saw him taken up, he's going to return. That's Acts 1. 1 Thessalonians 4. I love the way this verse begins. We do not want you to be uninformed, brothers. You don't have to make this up. You don't got to be careful. Let me speak very clearly here. Verse 16. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command, with the voice of the archangel, with the sound of the trumpet of God. And the dead in Christ will rise first, and then we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together with him in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we will always be with the Lord. So what do we do with that? Verse 18. Therefore, encourage one another with these words. I'm making this up. James chapter 5, 7 and 8. Be patient, therefore, brothers, until the coming of the Lord. See how the farmer waits for the precious fruit of the earth, being patient about it until it receives the early and the late rains? So you also be patient. Establish your hearts, for the coming of the Lord is at hand. Revelation chapter 1, verse 7. Behold, he is coming with the clouds, and every eye will see him. This is not going to be like, oh my gosh, did it happen and I miss it? You will not miss it. It's going to be unbelievably visible and clear. Every eye will see him. Even those who pierced him in all tribes of the earth will wail on account of him. Even so, amen. Fast forward to the end of the book of Revelation. Three times in the last 15 verses of the last chapter, Jesus says, red letters, I am coming soon. Three times in the last 15 verses, the second to last verse, Revelation 22, verse 20, he who testifies to these things says, Surely, I am coming soon. And John, the apostle, finishes the letter with, Amen. Come, Lord Jesus. Come, Lord Jesus. The return of Jesus is the eager expectation and hope of the New Testament and all who love Jesus. Amen? So what does this mean for us today? Here's the finish. What does this mean for us? It means absolutely everything. <laughs> This is our hope, right? Like this, this is our hope. It's not just that we eat, drink, and we're merry, and then we die. We eat, drink, and we're merry, 
and we die, but we will also be raised from the dead because he's the first fruits raised from the dead at the right hand of the Father and will return. Follow this logic with me for a second. If Jesus isn't raised from the dead, if he's not at the right hand of the Father, if he's still in a tomb in the Middle East, and he's not going to return, then literally none of this matters, and you and I are wasting our time, and I've taken up about 35 minutes of it. But if as we confess and we know to be true, the Spirit testifies, the Word of God declares, he is raised from the dead. His tomb is empty. He's at the right hand of the Father, and he will come again to judge the living and the dead and bring his kingdom to usher it in. If that is true, then every part of our life, literally every detail of our life underneath underneath his kingship matters in light of his return. So what? Go back to the passage. Stay awake. Stay awake. Be alert. Let me break it down this way. Your prayers matter. Your prayers matter. Sometimes it feels like they're bouncing off the ceiling. Sometimes it feels like it does, am I just, is this just like, you know, some sort of mantra I'm using to like coach myself up. I'm good enough and I'm smart enough and doggone it, people like me. Is that what prayer is? I don't know, your prayers matter. Why? Because Jesus isn't dead and his ears work just fine. And it says in Hebrews chapter seven that he's been resurrected from the dead And he's able to save you to the uttermost because every time he hears a prayer for you, it says he's always living to pray for you. Every time you pray to him, he's always living, it says, to intercede for you. He prays for you way more often than you pray for him, pray to him. We're not praying for Jesus. He's doing just fine. (laughs) You get what I mean. Your prayers matter. He's coming. Your prayers matter. Secondly, the way you know your Bible matters. Like, do you see how we could just be led to all kinds of bizarre conclusions or no conclusions at all if we had no idea what's been taught here today? The way you know your Bible matters. It anchors you in an anxious moment. The way you fight against temptation and your obedience to Jesus, it matters. He's coming again, and he's forming you in the meantime so that when he returns, you realize the scriptures teach that you will rule and you will reign with him over the inheritance the Father is giving to him, which is the entire cosmos, dressed in robes of righteousness for the next all eternity, enjoying the presence of God and ruling as co-heirs with him, that's unbelievable. So your life now, right, matters. The way you're being formed, the way you handle your work, your integrity at the office, in the classroom, wherever you find, matters. Why? Jesus is coming. Your marriage matters. Your marriage is an icon to the way he has this union with the church. That is the foundational union, then every other union is a response back to that union. And so your marriage is a testimony to the love that Jesus has with his people. Your marriage, if you're married today, matters. Your singleness matters. Who you are as a blood-bought disciple of our Lord Jesus Christ, who was a single man and never had a sexual encounter, yet was so fulfilled in the presence of God and with the power of the Holy Spirit, you're being formed after our Lord. Even in your singleness, it matters. Your parenting matters. The next generation matters. One generation shall come into the next, the works of God. 13 kids in a baptism class today is beautiful and it matters. We want more and we want to see that. We don't know when he's going to return. No one knows the day or the hour. We just know that he's coming and we want to keep passing on the beauty of our God to the next generation. 
Your sexual ethic matters. Your bodies aren't an accident, and they're not just tools for pleasure. You are made in the image of God with all dignity and honor of your creator. Who you are is not an accident, and it matters. The way we care for the poor matters. On the great day, Matthew chapter 26 is going to tell us that Jesus is going to tell us, thank you for giving me a cup of water, cold water. And we're going to say, when did we do that? And he says, when you served the least of these, you did it to me. He's returning. And our care for the poor matters. The last one here, who you are when no one's looking. Who you are when no one's looking in private, in the dark, matters. Why? Because everything is uncovered before the eyes of our great God. And there's nowhere where you're actually alone. He's with you. And who you are in private matters. Now, that's not saying just whip it together and muster it all up. It is saying bear out your life before the presence of God. And where you're struggling, me too. Cry out for help. That's the whole Christian life. But he's coming back. So the question is, where in your life are you being lulled to sleep? Where in your life does it seem like it not matter? Does it matter? Where in your life has the return of Jesus become an afterthought to you? And it's just sort of, I'm just continuing on with life as normal. Stay awake. Stay alert. Pay attention to your soul. Pay attention to the conflicts there. Pay attention to the word of God and how it's informing all of the rest. I want to read this passage Here's the finish from Revelation 13. I love this. Besides this, you know the time, that the hour has come for you to wake from sleep. I love this line. For salvation, in the context referring to the return of Jesus, for salvation is nearer to us now than when we first believed. When is he coming back? I actually don't know. But I know now that I'm nearer than I was yesterday. And I know now that I'm nearer than I was the beginning of this sermon and the beginning of this church service. I know now that I'm nearer today than when I first believed. It's at hand, he says. For the night is far gone. The day is at hand. So then let us cast off the works of darkness. Let us stay awake. Let us put on the armor of light. Let us walk properly as in daytime, not in orgies or drunkenness or sexual immorality or sensuality or quarreling or jealousy, but put on the Lord Jesus and make no provision for your flesh to gratify its desires. And Jesus says in Mark 13, 37, I say to you what I say to everybody, stay awake. Even so, Come, Lord Jesus. Amen. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for a careful study of your word today. And whatever was helpful, I pray that it would be retained and that we would apply it to everyone here, even me. And whatever might have been unhelpful, I pray that it would be dropped and, and forgotten. So we trust that, God, you'd form us as your people. And would you help us, like the New Testament writers, like the early church and like Christians throughout every century, would you help us be just like them and wait eagerly for your turn, return? And we just want to say as a church today, even so, come, Lord Jesus. Would you bear with those who are suffering in the world today? We ask for your return to restore all things to right. And we trust you in the meantime, good King. And we offer this prayer in Jesus' name, amen.